take a moment and uh, why don't you just shake some hands? Why don't you get out of your aisle? We'll get back to preaching for a moment. Why don't you welcome people in Jesus' name? I wish you could see the faces that my wife and sister Cindy were making. They were trying in vain to figure out what in the world the song was going on. And uh, what was kind of interesting, I don't know if it's good or bad, some of you kind of know that song. and It's a good thing we worshipped hard before because I'd hate for you to move more in that song than anything else. How many of you remember that song? Maybe it was your generation. Some of you just know it because it plays on the oldie stations or maybe your parents listened to it. The great pretender. And that's what I want to preach tonight. I want to preach about the great pretender. Because, I, now that song, if I understand the lyrics, and, and, and this is how I do it. You can be seated for a moment. This is how I, I work with lyrics and songs, especially some of the genres that I'm not too crazy about. But uh, I have to look at the lyrics. I have to read the lyrics before I, I you know, can truly understand a song, for the most part. Sometimes you don't hear every word when the music is going. But if I understand that song correctly, it's a poor guy that's lost his love. And he's walking around with his head high and a smile on his face while inside he's dying. And so if anybody asks, how are you doing? He'll say, I'm doing fine. But when nobody's watching, he gets his little Kleenex and he goes and he cries for his lost love. He says, I'm a great pretender. I'm not about to ask any of you if you've ever done that. And there's a difference between, there's a difference between, <laughs> there's a difference between being positive. I mean, I, I do, I'm not real, I don't like it when I go and shake somebody's hand and I say, you know, you know how are you doing today? And, and probably I didn't really mean that question. It was just a verbal greeting. And all of a sudden for the next 40 minutes they tell me their entire life sob story. And by the time they leave I'm ready to jump off a cliff. You know, so I do understand that there's a place and a time to, to you know, kind of smile even though things are bad and hurting. I understand that. But, but there's something a little bit different when you pretend. When you pretend. I like people that are themselves. Like people that are honest, that, that I just know they're, they're going to be the same, kind of like Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever. It's who they are is what I get. I'm okay with that. In 1808, there was a doctor by the names of James Hamilton in Manchester, England. And uh, while he was there, in walked just a, a person. His face was gaunt and sad. And 
The doctor was struck by the, the melancholy look, even probably worse than that, if I could describe it, of, of what it was. The man looked just, just completely haggard and worn and torn. The doctor looked and asked him, said, doctor, or he, said, he said, sir, are you sick? The man said, doctor, I'm sick of a mortal malady. You see, I'm frightened of the terror of the world around me. I'm depressed by life. I can find no happiness. Nothing amuses me. I don't have anything to live for. And doctor, you're my last hope. If you don't help me, I'm going to kill myself. Dr. Hamilton understood some things. And he said, he said, it's not a mortal malady. You need to just get outside of yourself. You need to laugh. You need to get some pleasure from life. You need to, you know, find some joy somewhere. In fact, here's what you need to do. There's a circus in town. You need to go see Grimaldi the Clown. He's the funniest man alive. And while you're sitting and watching his antics and having fun, you'll laugh and you'll feel better and you'll be cured. The man began to sob. He said, Doctor, you don't understand. I am Grimaldi. Sometimes in life, we put on the mask. We put on the facade that everything's okay when inside it's not. And we do that to each other, we do that to our friends, we do that to the people we don't, we don't know. But one of the worst places to ever do that is when you do that with God. Have you ever had someone come up to you, and, and let's just, let, let's, let's take it, you know, and make it kind of funny. Have you ever had someone come up to you, and they acted like they were rich and well-to-do, and they had everything put together, but you know good and well they were dirt poor? Like they hadn't eaten for a week so that they could afford the, the nice suit that they were wearing so that they could impress you. Have you ever had anybody try to impress you and you knew that that wasn't them? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting when you do that or, or if you have kids, your kids will try to tell you something and you know good and well it ain't true. And you're just kind of nodding. All right, okay, I'm with you. I wonder how many times God does that to us. That we, we come into the presence of God or, or, or anywhere and, and, and we're acting like something is not wrong. That something hasn't happened. And I want to I just talk to you a little bit about that. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19 is where I want to just kind of launch from. And we're going to tell the story today. It's a familiar story, I know. But if you'll just give us some time, maybe you'll learn a new nugget of truth in it. But more than anything, I want to just bring you to that place and talk about the great pretender. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And so now Rebekah is pregnant, and and. Of course, they didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't really know. But the Bible says in verse 22 that the children struggled together within her. She had twins. She didn't understand it. Any of you ladies that, that have had, had active babies in the womb, you understand. Sometimes they kick. Sometimes they punch. Sometimes they move. Well, he, she had two of them. And they were doing somersaults, it seems. And she said, Lord, why am I like this? And she, she began to pray. There were no midwives. There were no doctors. I guess there's midwives. There's no doctors, no obstetricians she could go to. So she prayed, Lord, what in the world is going on? And the Lord said unto her, verse 23, the Lord said unto her, Well, two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. I'm sure she had no idea what that meant. 
And then all of a sudden, when her days were to be delivered were fulfilled, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment. They called his name Esau. The Bible, that's, that's King James Version speak, for he looked like a orangutan. <laughs> that's how my mind works. Y'all are all too prim and proper for that. But every time I read that, that's what I get the impression of. It was obviously enough that it's in the Bible. Red all over. But then after that, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old. That means 60, three times 20. He was 60 years old when she bare them. The understanding, the impression was as Isaac ex, or, or as Esau exited the womb, a hand shot out and grabbed hold of the heel. I'll explain it a little bit later, probably the, 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 the why, if you will. And Isaac, loved, or, and the boys grew, verse 27, the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And, I, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in the tents. Here's a problem. Isaac loved Esau because he did eat the venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. That's a dysfunctional family. I could stop right now and preach an entire message on parenting and family units that would just, just go right there because you cannot have families that operate like that. And again, it, this wasn't just a passing fad. It, it, it meant so much that the Bible records it here, meaning that it was very noticeable. And so I want to talk to you, I want to introduce you to a man, probably a man that came from one of the most dysfunctional homes ever. This Jacob. He was a man who, who uh, the product of a daddy named Isaac and a mama, Rebecca's, and a prayer. But before he was even born, there was a struggle that went on. He and his brother were fighting. You think your children fighting uh, outside, uh, uh, you know, in the room is bad. They were fighting in the womb. They were, there, there, was, there was turmoil. They were struggling. They called him. When, when it was like it, it's not like it is now. Um, I don't know how you name your children. You know, uh, some people name their children after uh, perhaps family members. Uh, Zane is named after uh, a young man that we had met while we were evangelizing, Zane Wells. He was uh, 16 years old uh, when, when we preached at his dad's church in, in Alabama. This town in Alabama, Vincent, Alabama, had, had no stoplights in the entire town. You had two choices if you wanted to go out to eat. You could eat at the Huddle House, I think that's what it was called, which is a even worse than Waffle House, or in, and that was at the truck stop. Or you could eat in town at a place called Not Your Mama's. Or your mamas, your mamas. And so the running joke was people would say, where are you going to eat? And they'd say, your mamas. And so uh, some of y'all will get that later. And um, so that we didn't really have a lot of places to eat, and so we would eat at, at Sister Wells' house. We could walk back up the hill behind the church and eat there, and that lady could flat up cook. And we were sitting there, and, and Brienne kind of expected that she was pregnant. I had no idea. And, um, and so she's got all that in her mind, and anyway... Uh, I'm sitting there, Zane had an older brother named Zach, and Zach was a preacher extraordinaire, I mean could flat up tear it up, and he was at Bible college, and he was doing great things for the Lord, and here's Zane, he's 16 years old, in fact while we were there, Zane uh, got his, took his driver's test, and he came back, and we were all excited, well did you pass? He said no, I hit a chicken, and he did, why did the chicken cross the road? To get hit by Zane, and uh so, so he was there, Zane was kind of down, and I felt bad because we hadn't really talked about Zane. We'd been talking about Zach, this preacher. And finally I looked at Zane and I said, Zane, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
And as serious as he could be, he said, I want to be an elephant breeder. I don't know if that's what he's going to ever be. but So it was that moment. That's why we named Zane Zane, because we enjoyed that family and that connection. And, and, and now I understand that the name Zane kind of acts because I got a Zane that's kind of like Zane Wells. And I have no idea what Zane's going to be when he grows up. Maybe an elephant breeder. I don't know. So again, there's a lot of ways that we can name children. But in the Bible, they tended to name children, and they were very meaningful names. Um. If you if you if something had incredible had happened, they would name their you know their their child something. But um, Jacob, when he came out, now I know we have some Jacobs here, and this is no disrespect to those in 2016 named Jacob. But in the Bible times, Jacob wasn't a pretty name. Jacob had a name; it had connotations of deviousness. It literally means to supplant, to cheat, to deceive. And, and so the tradition of that time was to name their children and represented something. And so this, this little baby that came out pulling on his brother's heel became known as a cheater, a liar, a deceiver. Something He didn't have a chance for a normal life, Jacob didn't. Look at his life experiences. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 7. Jacob most likely was there with his mother and his dad when, when his dad Isaac lied to King Abimelech and, and said that Rebekah, his wife, was really his sister because he didn't want the king to kill him for his wife. And so he tried to, you know, he tried to say, oh, this is my sister, so don't kill me. And, and um, he saw his dad too scared to tell the truth. Jacob grew up in a dishonest household. If you go back in the Bible, Jacob probably learned that his dad, his father, grandfather rather, grandfather Abraham had done the exact same thing. That Abraham and, 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 and his wife, Sarah, were, had to sojourn in Egypt. They had to go down to Egypt for a time. And, and, and Abraham looked at his wife and he said, Pharaoh, I know Pharaoh thinks you're a beautiful lady and, and, and he probably wants you in his harem and he'll kill me to get you. So if, if anybody asks, don't tell him I'm your husband. I don't want to die. Tell him I'm your brother. And, and, and it, it happened. You can read it in the word of God. Jacob lived in this dishonest household. We'll talk about it in a moment, but later on it was his mother that helped convince him to lie to his father in order to receive that birthright. It was Jacob that was labeled that deceiver by his parents and the life experiences that he had. Everything about Jacob was deception. See, first off, it came when Jacob came home. They were, they were uh, grown men by now. Jacob came home, or rather Esau came home from a hunting trip empty-handed. He had been outside. This was not like going out into the woods and sitting in the tree stand for a couple hours and coming back. These hunting trips would have been a multi-day, maybe week campaign. They would have gone far, got everything they can, brought it back. And Esau comes. He's starving. It was a bad trip. He's weak. He's gaunt with hunger. And, and here's Jacob sitting at the fire, and he's making some stew or some lentils. And Jacob as he's doing that. And I just, again, please allow me to step into my imagination. I can see Jacob because... This is how boys are. Esau comes and he goes, man, I'm so hungry. And Jacob goes, mmm, doesn't this smell good? And Esau is very serious. He goes, can I have some of that soup? And Jacob goes, no, it's my soup. You can't have any of my soup. Go make your own soup. Go kill a deer. And anyway, in the middle of it, Esau is so hungry. He says, I'll give you anything you want. Just give me some soup. And Jacob goes, okay, let me have 
your birthright. The birthright was a blessing from the father that included a double portion of the family's inheritance as well as they would become the ruler or the, or the head of the family and that tribe and the authority. And, and Esau was so hungry and maybe he, was, he didn't think about you know, the future. He wasn't thinking about that birthright. He just wanted something right now. And that's a whole other story when you sell the things of the future for something right now. But anyway, Jacob or Esau says, sure, you, you can have the birthright, whatever. Give me a bowl of soup. And he eats the bowl of soup. But of course, in those days, a man's word was his bond. And it wasn't just a joke. It wasn't just for fun. He got the birthright. Now Jacob, the second that shouldn't have had it, is going to get a double portion. And he's also going to get the, the headship of the family when his father dies. The second act of deception came at his mother's urging. The Bible recorded, we read it earlier, Isaac loved uh, Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. And when it came time that Isaac was going to die, he wanted to leave his oldest son with at least a blessing. And so he sent Esau out to get a deer and make that venison stew that, that uh, Isaac so loved. Rebekah heard what was happening and so she said to Esau, she said, while Isaac's, or why, uh, 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 whatever the, uh, Esau, that's the word I'm looking for. While he's gone, I want you to go out, kill a, kill a little goat. And we'll spice it up so that Isaac really won't understand what it is. He's, he's blind. He can't see. And, and then I want you to dress in, in Esau's clothes. And we're going to put some, some animal fur on your arm so that when he reaches out to touch you, you'll feel hairy like your brother. You'll smell like your brother. And, and, and the food will be spicy. He won't know. And you can go. And so he deceived his blind father. And his father was thoroughly convinced that Jacob was Esau, the firstborn. And so he blessed Jacob. Jacob now has, has tricked his brother out of the birthright, out of the inheritance, but now he's tricked him out of the blessing. And of course, obviously, Esau finds out about it. He's furious. He's ready to murder Jacob. Rebekah finds out about it. This is how fractured that family is. Rebekah finds out about it and sends Jacob away. Jacob runs for his life. He's going to see his uncle Laban. Rebekah lies about why Jacob was running away. He flees because he is a cheating, deceiving nature, a man without a home, a man without friends, a man with a brother that has a revengeful spirit with him. He was a man that, that just, he didn't know. He's grieved, he's vexed, he's tormented. All of these things are going on. In Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10, something happens. He's leaving. There's no inns. There's no hotels. He just, when he finally gets far enough away and it's dark or getting dark, he just makes camp comes to Haran. It's a certain place. The Bible says he stops for the night. He lays down in his loneliness and his despair. He has no pillow. He just kind of pulls a couple rocks so he can lay his head on there. It's a stony pillow that echoed his stony heart. An echo of the hard places that he's gone through and been in. And as he drifts off into that troubled sleep, tossing and turning, he dreams. He dreams that the heavens are... are uh, that there's a ladder that goes from heaven to earth. He sees angels walking up and down the ladder, Jacob's ladder. He don't understand what it is. When he wakes up, he, uh, he, he hears, or, or maybe even while he was asleep, I don't know. But he hears the, the Lord begin to speak with him. And I want you to listen, verse, verse 10 of chapter Genesis chapter 28. This is what the Lord said. He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, my father, and of God of Isaac, and the land whereon you lie, to thee I will give it to you and to your seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, 
Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee. I'll keep you in all the places where you go. I'll bring you again into this land, for I will not leave you until I've done that which I've spoken of. It was God promising Jacob that I will be with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even though you have no idea what your future holds, I got it. Jacob wakes up and he says, surely the Lord was in this place. And I knew it not. Jacob has a respect for God. And his next response is, this is an awesome place. This is the house of God. They called it Bethel at that point. He gets up the next morning. He takes those stony pillows and he makes up an altar. He knows that he needs to talk with God, but he's not quite sure how to go about it. See, Jacob had a problem. Jacob had lived his entire life with deception. He doesn't trust anybody and nobody for sure trusted him. And he doesn't even trust God. And this is where the great pretender comes in. So Jacob puts on a good front. Nothing's wrong with me. And he prays. His trust or lack thereof causes him to hide behind his pretense. I can't be real with God. I can't tell God everything about it. It's one of these problems. I don't have a problem. I'm the victim here. It's not my fault. It's mom's fault. It's dad's fault. It's everybody else's fault. And so Jacob prays. And I want you to listen to his prayer. If God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I set for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth back to thee. Sounds like a good prayer, but it's a prayer of conditions. If you do this, God, I'll serve you. If you do this, I'll trust you. If you help me, I will serve you. Again, pretending, God, you have to do everything. I don't have to do anything. He leaves Bethel and he reaches his uncle Laban's house and there he meets the girl of his dreams. Her name is Rachel. He promises that he will work seven years in order to get Rachel as his wife. And so seven long, arduous years where Laban makes him do all of the hard work. But yet Jacob does it because it's his bride-to-be. And so after seven years, there's a great party. The wedding goes. It's, it's not like any wedding you've ever seen. It's a long, arduous process. And the Bible gives us a sense that Laban even just keeps giving and keeps pouring wine into uh, Uh, Jacob's cup and finally Jacob is probably pretty drunk at this point and so now it's time they don't have honeymoons it's just we're done you can take your bride back the bride and that custom would have been heavily veiled think of some of the middle eastern nomads that you see where they just have slits perhaps in their eyes heavily veiled and so they go back to the honeymoon uh, suite and the next morning when the hangover is kind of wearing off He looks and it's not Rachel that he married, it's her sister Leah and she wasn't near as as pretty and as attractive and that wasn't the one he wanted and now Jacob's become a victim of deception rather than being just the deceiver. Laban laughs it off and says, oh we have a custom, I have to always marry the older first. But tell you what, why don't you work seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. So there's a marriage again. And, and it's not that he worked seven more years and got Rachel. The understanding is he worked seven years and got Leah. Went to sleep, woke up, or, or you know, thought he was getting Rachel. Went to sleep, woke up, and he got Leah. And then just the next day or a couple days later, he marries Rachel and promises to work seven years, meaning he had two wives in the space of like 24 hours. 
The good news is he only he only he had two wives, but only one mother-in-law. That was a good thing. My mother-in-law is not here, so I can say that. But uh, his life is not perfect. His relationship with his father-in-law is rocky and untrusting. They spend most of their time in the Bible accusing each other of some theft or some misdeed. Jacob is still deceiving. Finally, Jacob is tired of it. He says, I'm going home. I don't care what happens. He packs up his two wives, his servants, their children, 11 sons, the Bible says. There was daughters included, goats and sheep and animals and camels, and they go home. Jacob is still kind of living a life of, I'm okay, I'll make it. As they're arriving home, Jacob's servants come running back saying Esau's coming with 400 men. And it flashes back. Jacob just knows Esau's going to kill him. It's a murderous revenge. And so he splits his family up in two and sends half of the family that way, half of the family that way. Maybe they won't find them all. And then he kneels down there at Peniel and he prays. And listen to his prayer. Remember his first prayer that was full of conditions? Listen to the second. O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, The Lord which said to me, return into thy country and to thy kindred and I will deal with thee. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all these mercies. And of a truth that you've sown to your servant. He said, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother of my children. And I remember you said, I will surely do thee good and make your seed as the sand of the sea that cannot be numbered for a multitude. It's at this point that Jacob starts getting things right. There's no conditions here. First off, there's a genuine humility. I'm not worthy of these mercies. There's no conditions put on God this time. But there is a belief in the promises that he heard before. Jacob sends his family away and Jacob is left all alone. And in this place of Peniel, Jacob all by himself begins to pray and appears unto him, the Bible says, an angel. But it really probably is more a manifestation of God himself. And they begin to wrestle. I don't know what precipitated the wrestling match. I don't know what first got them to lay arms on each other. But Jacob knew it was an angel or knew it was God. I don't know how he knew. But they're wrestling and they're fighting. And the earth is being torn up. uh, And grass and the struggle all sense of direction and time is lost. As each are trying to gain the upper hand. And I get the sense that every frustration that Jacob had had building up becomes piling out. He's fighting, if you will, against every person that let him down. Against every person that called him. Against his own inadequacies and his own problems he's fighting, he's mad and he's, he's doing it and, and, and he, he's tearing into God day is coming and Jacob won't let go and, and the angel or, or, or the theophany of God says you gotta let me go day is coming and, and Jacob says I'm not letting you go and I can imagine that it's that angry tears that are springing from his face, they're grappling they're, they're fighting and finally uh, uh, God hits his thigh and the sinews and the tendons shrink as his thigh pops out of, uh, out of socket and, and you just know that he's in immense pain and he screams and I get this impression that now Jacob is mad at God. Everybody else in his life has hurt him, and now God's seemingly hurting him. He's mad, he's sorrowful, he's bitter. And then in this, you have this little phrase. God says, what is your name? Have you ever wondered why the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere God needed to know Jacob's name? He knows his name. 
God knows the, the, the sparrow that falls dead from a tree. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows everything about you. Why would he have to know the name? It's because at that moment, God was wanting to see if Jacob would be honest with himself and honest with God. What have you been called all of your life? Because if he says, I'm Jacob, it means I have to identify myself to God as a cheater and a deceiver. So finally in his hurt, he says, my name is Jacob. And at that moment, God says, not anymore. From this day forth, you'll no longer be named Jacob or deceiver. But I'm going to name you Israel, which means the prince of God. Jacob called that place Peniel. The first place he met God was Bethel. But the second place he met God was Peniel. He says, I have seen God face to face. Three things happened. Jacob's walk changed. He forever carried a limp. His name changed. And his destiny changed. What does all this mean for you and I? Well... All of us come with labels, all of us come with situations, all of us come with problems, and, and you're real good at pretending. I mean, we would never identify ourselves as a sinner. I don't, I don't, I'm, Brother Harvey, I've never walked up to anybody and shaken their hand. They say, hi, I'm Brandon, I'm a sinner. Most of the time they say, hi, I'm Brandon, and I'm perfectly fine. I don't need God, I don't need the church, I don't need anything. I'm good just as I am, and I know good and well we are not. But you've existed long enough with those labels and those names. And I'm convinced that we get to the place where we say, I'm ready to change. You might not know where to turn. You might not know where to go. But if you'll just get to the house of God, that's Bethel. If you'll just get to the house of God, then, 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 then you can hear from God. God wants to tell you everything's going to be okay. He's got you. Even though you've been a sinner, even though you've been messed up, even though you've done all of this, He's got you and He knows what your future holds and He wants to bless you desperately. Desperately. But he's asking this question, what is your name? It's so interesting, and I know we can't always operate like this, but I, sometimes it's just, in fact, I think, Steve, you're the one that was telling me about that book, When God Winks. It's, it's a book where it, it takes stories that most would call coincidences, and it's people that you may have heard of and stories that where God or where, where people there's coincidences in their life and the author says those are not coincidences those are the blessings of God when God kind of winks at us and puts things in order and that's how I operate there are no such thing as coincidences so I was working on this sermon and uh, I woke up this morning and grabbed my phone and I checked my emails I get 8 million spam messages I'm going through it and I had, happened to have a uh, I'm subscribed to a blog I don't read it hardly at all but for some reason, I clicked on that blog today, and it talked about the, the, the paradoxical patriarch. And it just so happened, the first thing, after I was already knowing what I was going to preach and had the sermon already, it was interesting this morning, the first thing I read was a, an article, an online article about Jacob. And the author made this statement, God could not bless Jacob if he was hiding, if he wasn't honest with himself. What I wrote down here. This is what, what the author said. That Jesus can't bless you 
who you pretend to be. God's not interested in blessing who you're pretending to be. God wants to touch you. Not the facade, not the, 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 the face that you show everybody else. God wants to touch you. That's why when we're baptized in Acts chapter 19 and verse 4, of course, Acts chapter 2 teaches us that we're baptized in the name of Jesus. And why? It's because of what they sung, that special group. <laughs> when we begin to talk about the name of Jesus, you begin to, something begins to well up inside because the Bible says at that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Acts chapter 4 says there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 19, he said they were baptized into the name of Jesus. It's not just the name of Jesus called over you when you go in the water, but you're baptized into the name. You take on the name of Jesus. No more are you a sinner. No more are you a deceiver. No more are you this and that. But you are a child of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, If therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A new name, a new future, a new possibility. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Somewhere here, someone here today needs to understand the fullness of God's transformation and the completeness of God's mercy. His grace is sufficient for thee. We didn't deserve the mercy, but He loved us. And he made us whole. The story tells of a little boy that went to his grandpa's farm. You know how boys are. They get out there and they're, they're, they, they're in the woods and they can run and do whatever they want to do. And he had a little slingshot. He would practice in the woods. He would hit anything and everything he can, but he can never hit his target. He practiced. He was so mad. And he had tried everything. Every stump, every leaf, every stick that was sticking up, nothing would ever happen. And he was just so frustrated he's walking back and grandma's duck came walking out and on a whim he just he hadn't hit anything ever sure enough that time that stone went right there hit that poor little duck in the head and that duck died instantly Boom. in a panic he looked around nobody's watching he picked up that duck and he threw it in the wood pile and, and then he looked up and behind the tree Sally his sister was watching Next day at lunch time, Grandpa said, Sally, come help me wash the dishes. And Sally said, you know what? Johnny told me he wanted to wash the dishes today. Johnny shot her a look. And Sally whispered, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later that day, Grandpa said, let's go fishing. Grandma said, well, Sally, I need you to stay here. We're going to make a pie. And Sally said, that's okay, Johnny says he wants to make the pie. And Johnny went, no, I didn't. And Sally said, remember the duck. Days went by. Johnny did every chore. And Sally just simply said, remember the duck. Until finally, Johnny couldn't take it no more. He, he, he ran to Grandma and he confessed that he was the one that had killed the duck. Grandma knelt down and gave him a hug and said, I know. I was watching out the window. I saw the whole thing. But I know what happened. But I wanted to see how long. You were going to let Sally make a slave out of you. The correlation is this. 
whatever's in your past, whatever you've done, whatever the devil keeps throwing in your face, you need to know that Jesus knows all about it already. The facade you try to put, the the mask of I'm okay, I don't need God, he already sees it, he knows. He's just wondering how long are you going to let the devil put you on a string and yank you around. He's going to want to know how long are you going to let guilt and shame and condemnation rule you. But the greatest thing is, is when you ask God for forgiveness, which means you get real with him. When you say, God, this is who I really am. I'm a sinner, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat. I try to be good and even my best is not good enough, but his mercy and his grace is there. Matthew chapter 12, would you stand today? Matthew chapter 12 says that Jesus went to the synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand. And they were asking, they were trying to convince God and and accuse God and they, they knew you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day, but they said, hey, this man has a withered hand, would you... Would you touch him? And they, they just knew if, if God, if Jesus, you know, heals on the Sabbath, they could, they could have something on him. And Jesus pushes their words back in their face. And, but at the end of the day, he looks at that man with a withered hand and he says, show me your hand. Now, I know a young man. He's an incredible young man. But he was born with a withered hand. And growing up, he had learned to hide that hand. He learned to wear long sleeve shirts in the summertime because he didn't want anybody to see the withered hand. As he got older, he, he got more confident, but, but when I first met him, he didn't want anybody to know because we don't like people to know our problems. We don't like people to know our faults and our failures. But Jesus walks up and he says, show it to me. Why? Can't you just say the word and it's healed? But sometimes Jesus wants you to be willing to show him your problems. When that man was willing to give Jesus his problem, God healed it, and it was restored. God wants to do something to you today. I felt his presence all from the beginning to the end. We only have one service today, and somehow I think we've gotten a double portion. We've got more God right now than we could have in two services, it seems. But I wonder if we could just begin to open these altars. I'd I'd love for you to come. No one's going to be listening. No one's paying attention because we're all doing it for our own. But I think there's some things you need to give God so that he can change your future. That's what repentance really is. Lord, I'm sorry for who I am. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've become. And God, I want you to touch my life. I'm going to let you talk to God right now in your own way. In Jesus' name.